The title of the message is Christ is Our Only Mediator. And last Lord's Day, which was New Year's Eve, right before entering a new year, we talked about principles of prayer from Psalm 5. I know many of you were sick. Um, That's available online. But we talked about the importance of prayer, um, some of the ways we can go about praying, that we should be earnest, that we should keep God's holiness and his attributes in view. And today, I want to take that to a next a step further and discuss how important it is for when we pray to go through a mediator. And so we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, if you want to find your way there. Imagine for a moment you found yourself in some difficulty. Your home loan uh, company that has your loan uh, goes bankrupt, and you have to scramble to find out what are you going to do type of thing. You would call an expert to consult with. Or maybe you're deciding whether to have solar installed on your house and you want to find somebody that really knows their business. Does this make, is this going to be economically wise and all of that? And so you call in a wisdom of counselors or a particular expert. Well, for us being mankind on this earth, the biggest problem that we have is our sin. And we need to be able to approach a holy God in light of our sinfulness. And so therefore, we need to realize that we have a massive debt of sin and that we can't just go bursting into God's presence, but we must come through a mediator. And maybe there are some of you here today that you've realized as another year clicks by and we've entered 2018, that you have some unresolved sin that you need to deal with that you have a debt of sin that you can never pay back to this holy God and that you need to have taken care of. You, you have a debt that you can't just keep revolving the credit, but the, but the debt needs to be resolved once and for all. And that's only with coming through a mediator. And that's the good news of the gospel, the one that bridges the gap, the one that has come to stand between a holy God and sinful man, the one that that, that allows us to have access to God. Our confession in chapter 8 talks about Christ the mediator. In the first paragraph it reads, It pleased God and His eternal purpose to choose and to ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man. The prophet, priest, and king, the head, the savior of the church, the heir of all things, the judge of the world, unto whom He did from all eternity give a people to be His seed." And to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. All of those covenant graces of coming to faith in Christ and experiencing redemption and, and you know, being called and, and irresistibly called and justified and sanctified and ultimately glorified to go into his presence is only possible because of what Christ has done. The ransom that he has paid. He has set us free. We were captives bound to our sin. And so consider you were uh, accused of the most horrible crime that you could ever imagine. You wouldn't go. You, what would you do? You would go to hire the best lawyer to defend you, right? To represent you. You wouldn't just go on Craigslist and go through all the scam ads and just randomly pick one, right? 
You would actually hire the best in the field. And so too, you have a sin problem before God. You need to go to Christ, the one that can represent you before a holy God. So I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 to get the fuller context, but we're not going to really expound that whole section. But I want you to see the fuller context. Beginning in verse 1, 1 Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and for all who in authority, so, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and am telling the truth. I am not lying as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Let's pray. Father, we do ask once again, expressing our holy dependence upon you to remove cares and distractions, Lord, that you would come and that you would attend unto the word by your spirit, that you would drive your word deep into our hearts, that we could love you more, that we could apply these truths here Oh, Lord, we ask that you would visit us even now in Jesus' name. Amen. So just very quickly, the book of 1 Timothy uh, is a book about how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. That's exactly what it says in verse three and, uh, verse, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 15. Um, I write so that you would know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So it's sort of a manual of how to do New Testament church. That you got the elder and deacon qualifications in here, how to pray, the role of women, a whole host of other things that we're not going to uh, review at this time. But the early church knew how important prayer was as to the vitality of the success of the proclamation of the gospel. Read the book of Acts. What do you see? And they're coming together, and they're praying together. They're going out, and they're proclaiming the word, and many are being saved. Prayer and the success of the gospel go hand in hand. In fact, verses 1 to 4 here, you have this, you know, it's really laid out here. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. And that would mean all types of men, the way Paul uses all. Um, it's, it's all types of men. And then he lists all these various ones in authority and so forth. Paul demonstrates uh, even that through prayer we're to demonstrate our dependence upon God. And that's why if you've been sitting here for this worship service, you've heard multiple prayers. We began with prayer we had a pastoral prayer. We had a prayer right at the beginning of the sermon. And, 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 and so we're expressing our dependence upon God that he might visit us. These words that Paul uses, entreaties, um, means an urgent request to meet a specific need. Prayers is request for God to fulfill the needs that are always present. So the things that we always pray for, prayer, prayer. 
petitions. That's the idea of intercession on behalf of others. And of course, giving God thanksgivings and thanks for what he has done. And of course, the the context is clear. All men are all classes of men, kings and subjects and rulers and Gentiles and Jews. All men without distinction of the color of their skin or the color of their eyes or the color of their hair or their body build or social position or any such thing. And so for Paul in Paul's day, be the idea of the Neros of the world and the other wicked rulers for us in our day, it's, it's you know, we, we could think of it as praying for other countries, even con- communist countries. We pray for the leadership of North Korea that they might come to more of a biblical understanding. We intercede on behalf of other countries and Islamic nations and even our own president, President Trump and governors and senators and all of that. But these prayers lead to, as you see here, a, a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So that should be one of the takeaways. And so we see here in verse 4, who desires all men to be saved uh, and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We'll unpack that a little bit. The the idea of, of the moral will of God is that uh, he desires that, that none would perish, Ezekiel 18, right? But the sovereign will of God is we know that only those who have been predestined, only those who are elect will be saved. We don't know who those are, so we preach indiscriminately to all men, just as the Apostle Paul did. Acts 2.23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross at the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so statements like this demonstrate the breath of God's love in light of our wickedness and the wickedness of mankind. So as we come to our text, Paul now reveals, as it were, the means of how we can be saved. And that is only through a mediator by his ransom. This is, this is anyone who would be saved must come through the mediation of Christ. And, and what we're going to be discussing, it's, 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 it's added to how we can come to God in prayer, that we would have a, a fertile and productive prayer life in 2018, as we were making the point last week. But also, it's very rich theologically, and so this could exercise your mind, so put your thinking caps on. We're going to look at this under four points. One true God, one mediator between God and man, one effectual ransom, and one gospel message to proclaim. So first of all, the very first phrase in verse 5, for there is one God. All other gods are idols. All other gods are imposters. There is one true God. Isaiah 44 verse 6, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. There is no other gods. The world boasts of many gods. The world makes gods of their own hands and all of these kinds of things, their own superstitions and and in certain countries and all of this. But there is one true God. That's the bedrock of our theology. The study of God is that there's only one true God. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. 
Of course, we know the Trinity, and that's unfolded more. This is the idea here that there's one true God. And what was true in the Old Testament in those verses is true in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And yet, for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and then one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all, all things, and we exist through Him. Paul says in Romans 3, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God will justify the circumcised by faith and the the uncircumcised through faith is one. The same God that justifies the Jew and the Gentile is one God. Now you have to remember the context of 1 Timothy. Um, Timothy is in Ephesus. Paul is in prison. Ephesus had many gods, um, and so that it was an environment of idolatry, and so he's communicating this. It's so too for us today. Pluralism is all around us. That, oh, whatever God works for you, this, this God works for you, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever, Allah, you know, da 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 da. It's, you know, whichever one works, or the idea that, that there's many ways to God. Acts 4.12, there is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved. Christ's high priestly prayer in 17.3 of John says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So first of all, there's one true God. Secondly, there's one mediator. Only one mediator, okay? In a world where there's supposedly many mediators, there's only one mediator according to the text. And it says, and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So there's one God and one mediator. What is a mediator exactly? A mediator is, is a go-between. A mediator is a, is a representative, as it were. Um, and it's very simple. Why do we need a mediator? It's because of our sin. By nature, we're enemies against God. We are filled with sin. We're born in sin. We're sinners by practice. And God is altogether pure and holy. And so we are at enmity with God. We need someone to stand in the gap. Someone to pay for our sin. Someone that, that, that can live a perfect life and obey God's law perfectly so that His righteousness can be imputed to us. As old as the book of Job is, Job knew this very truth in chapter 9. He says, I am accounted wicked. Why then should I toil in vain? If I should wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, and yet you would plunge me into the pit, and my own clothes would abhor me. For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we may go to court together. And he says, there is no umpire between us who may lay his hand upon us both. That's a picture of Christ. Christ is the one that lays his hand upon God and upon us, a sinful man, and bridges the gap so that we can have access to him. The lexical definition is is one who intervenes between two parties. Uh, either in order to make or to restore peace and friendship, or for ratifying a covenant. 
Jesus Christ bridges the gap between the holy, perfect creator and sinful creatures. And and if it wasn't for a mediator, how could the two exist? We would be consumed in his fury. But in the perfect plan of God, the eternal plan of God, according to our confession, Christ was called to be the mediator, and he comes in the virgin birth, if we've been discussing this past month, takes on human flesh, lives the perfect life, dies on the cross, a substitutionary atonement, which we'll see in the next point. That's how he can be the mediator. He is fully God, and so he meets God's standards. Hebrews 8, 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as some as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. The next time you read the book of Hebrews, just take a pen, and every time you see better, just underline it. Better, 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 better. And those who want to go back to the old covenant and go back to the old covenant laws and all of that miss the point of the book of Hebrews and that we have a great high priest. We don't need earthly priests to represent us to go and to approach God. Now, the apostle emphasizes here um, one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Well, I thought he was second person of the Trinity. Here's the man. The reason Jesus is the only mediator is because he possesses both the divine nature of God and the human nature of man. And these two are wedded together. That's the only way that he can be the mediator. All other mediators are imposters because they have not that quality of the divine nature and the human nature wedded together, the hypostatic union. Angels do not. They don't have both of those natures. Uh, Mary does not, right? The saints that are venerated and lifted up and prayed to do not. No, there are, those are all imposters, to the one and only mediator. What an insult to Christ to say that you've got a better mediator than him. What an insult to him. If you're going to approach God, brethren, fellow man, you better come on his terms, to his appointed means, to the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. Him and him alone can fully reconcile us to this God Notice that Paul mentions his human nature rather than his divine nature here to identify that he, he, his, the point that, that he's a mediator to us as man, to the human race. Hebrews 4.15 emphasizes this and talking about Christ as our great high priest that, that he alone can sympathize with us because he's been tempted in all things as we are. Hebrews 2 emphasizes this as well, 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, us, mankind, he himself likewise partook of the same. He had to take on flesh and blood. It wasn't some phantom. It wasn't some you know, outer shell of a, of a human. He was a real human. In our confession in chapter 8, Christ the Mediator, which is a very edifying read of the ten paragraphs. If you're looking for something to read this afternoon, 
to your family, but paragraph two, and I'm just going to read the beginning and the end of this. The Son of God, the second person of the Holy, in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, one substance and equal with Him, who made the world and upholds and governs all things, and I'll just skip down to the bottom, so that the two, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, so that so was made of a woman, the tribe of Judah, the seed of Abraham, David, according to the scriptures, so that the two whole, perfect, distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, without composition, without confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. The whole perfect, distinct natures joined together to become Christ, the mediator. And this is a mystery for us. We can't fully grasp that. So mediator is not necessarily um, an office as it is a function. It's a function of what he does. And if you do read chapter 8 of our confession, you'll see it goes back and forth between the person who he is and the work that he has accomplished. There's about five paragraphs that describe that in its fullness. But the offices of a mediator we know are prophet, priest, and king. Now what does a prophet do? A prophet is one who represents God to the people, right? He speaks on behalf, uh, on behalf of God. He reveals the way of salvation and passes on the message of the Father with authority. Now, the priest, on the other hand, does what? A priest represents the people before God. And so the priest is representing the people before God, And of course, we know that part of his priestly work is that he's a ransom. He's the lamb that takes away our sins. He bore our sins in his body. Uh, He's both priest and sacrifice. But then also king that he shares in the universal dominion of God. That as the catechism says in Westminster Shorter, that he rules over us and protects us. So Christ, the mediator. Mediator is not an office. The offices of a mediator are prophet, priest, and king. So as we see the way God has designed the salvation, there's one God, there's one mediator, but there's also, thirdly, one ransom, one sacrifice, one supreme sacrifice. How many, how many animals were executed in the Old Testament under the priest? We do not know, but it was in the millions, I'm sure. Millions and millions of lambs and bulls and doves and all of this being sacrificed, there is sin offerings and all of that. Christ, one ransom, is effectual for all time. Look at the text, verse 6. Who, this mediator, gave himself as a ransom for all. He gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus gave himself. He now begins, now that he's identified the mediator, Paul wants to now say, well, what, what, what work has the mediator done? And he gave himself. It points to the sacrificial nature of his death on the cross. His crucifixion was a voluntary offering. Brother Aaron read uh, from these excellent scripture passages, but John 10 verse 17 
For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. And so it's a voluntary offering on Jesus Christ's part. He did not die for his own sins, but he bore the sins of all of his people. This is the doctrine of a substitutionary atonement, of which Isaiah 53 speaks so beautifully. Um, And that doctrine is hated by many in our day, that there's an exclusive and only one way of salvation, but it's clearly taught in the Scriptures. The atonement of Christ paid the ransom that you owed. He paid the ransom. What does it mean to ransom? It means to buy back. It means to purchase back. It's the idea of a captive being released after being held in bondage after the payment has been made. One lexicon says this of the word literally as a price paid or a means used to set someone free from captivity or bondage. Um, it's like paying the debt on someone. If someone, if Deepu owed me uh, $5,000 or, or owed somebody $5,000 and I paid the debt and went to the bank, he's no longer obligated. He's freed from that debt. And the word Paul uses here is a compound word, which adds to the idea of instead of. And so he's a substitute ransom. A ransom for the return of all. So when he died on the cross, he made an exchange for sin. It was not some price that was paid to the devil or whatever, some of these superstitious stories that you see, but an infinite payment was made to satisfy the just wrath of a holy God against our sin. Just wrath. Why? Because he's just. He can't allow sin into his presence. And so his anger and his fury is ignited, but Christ comes and satisfies that wrath. He satisfies that justice. That's why he had to be made both God and man. He had to be man to truly represent us. He had to be divine, to be sinless, that he might be a qualified ransom. Listen to what Spurgeon says in an early sermon. I think uh, it was about 22 when he preached this. When a prisoner has been taken captive and has been made a slave, typically before he could be set free, that a ransom price should be paid down. Now, by the fall of Adam, we were the irreproachable judgment of God given up to the vengeance of the law. We were given into the hands of justice. Justice claimed us to be his bond forever unless we could pay the ransom. It was just then that Jesus Christ stepped in. And in, and in the stead of all believers paid the ransom price that we might in that hour be delivered from the curse of the law and the vengeance of God and go our way clean, free, and justified by his blood. So what's the theological implication here of who gave himself as a ransom for all. So what does that mean? Did did he die for every single person in the world? Did he die for 
Hitler? Did he die for um, Nero? Did he die for Herod? Did he die for, for Judas? But he was a failure because ultimately they ended up in hell. What does it mean? Well, the word that he uses for for is huper in the original, which means instead of. Okay, so he died instead of. In the context here, um, you see all being used in different ways. Verse 2, for kings and all in authority, all types of men in authority. In verse 4, desires all types of men to be saved according to the text. In fact, in uh, chapter 6 and verse 10, it says, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. The word sort isn't there. That's, that's the uh, translators actually put that in because the King James said the root of evil, or the root of evil, that money is the root of evil, of, of all evil, not all sorts of evil. And so the idea of all, it doesn't always mean all to the full extent. And so this is not teaching universal atonement. That would be the Arminian position. But he gave himself as a ransom for all. It speaks of the sufficiency of the atonement, not its design. We must consider the extent of the atonement in light of other scripture. An actual salvation that's actually purchased. Remember this whole idea of ransom and purchase and, and bringing us together with God. Matthew one twenty one that he would save his people, a chosen people, from their sin. Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, many beyond number, many that anyone would count. Ephesians 5.25, so Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for the church and the heathen? No, for her, the church. It was a particular design in the atonement. Of course, it could be effectual for a thousand worlds, but it's effectual only for whom he died. One theologian, R.L. Dabney, Southern Presbyterian, says this, the blood, his blood was sufficient for a thousand worlds, but on the other hand, if there was only one sinner for whom to die, the whole work of Christ would have been needed to expiate that guilt. Sometimes we think, Well, Jesus must have died for millions and millions and millions of people. That's why the agony was so terrible on the cross. No, if it was one person, the agony would have been the same. And so, of course, we don't mention uh, the doctrines of grace are commonly what we call this. Um, Tulip, and some of us know those terms, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, effectual calling, Um, and then perseverance of the saints. I don't like limited atonement because it sounds too limiting. I like better particular redemption. It's a redemption that is effectual for all that it was designed for. And when he paid for our sins, he knew exactly who he was paying the sins for and what sins he was paying because he is God. He actually paid it all, as the hymn says. He did not die to just merely make salvation possible. That would make him a failure because of all the people that are not saved. There is no double jeopardy with God either because if he died for every single person, every single person would be saved. There's no double jeopardy. Sins are paid for in one of two places, the sinner paying in hell or on the cross for his people. So Christ's atonement is unlimited in its sufficiency 
but limited in its application. Um, to flesh this out a little bit, uh, Shedd, another 19th century theologian, says this, the extent in which medicine is offered and not limited to the number of people who buy and use it. Its cure of the disease is the sole reason in selling it, and so it is offered to everybody. And so too, we offer the gospel to everybody indiscriminately, but it's only those who will come on his terms, repenting of their sins, that then we know, of course, Christ has died for that one. It's like this, you know, the medicine that's being offered, the flu epidemic around us, or right now in Zambia, there's a cholera outbreak. Many churches are not even meeting today on the Lord's Day because the government has shut down schools and are telling churches not to meet because it's spreading so rapidly. The medicine could be offered, but it's only those who come to get the medicine by which it's effectual to bring the healing. I hope that makes sense. First Peter 2.24, and he himself bore our sins, particular, in his body on the cross. There was a payment that was made. Now, critics want to say, well, if that's the case, why go and evangelize? Bring the missionaries back home. There's no point in, in taking the word out there. There's no point in us going to Balboa Park or to the abortion mills uh, to preach the word. Well, that's the kind of thing that upset William Carey 200 years ago. And when he came to his hyper-Calvinistic elders and said he wanted to go to serve the Lord among the heathen, this is what one man told him. Young man, if God's going to convert the heathen, he'll do it without your help or ours. Well, that response drove him out of that church to be supported by other Baptist Missionary Society, and he became the father of modern missions and served the Lord in India and began a great work of missionaries. The 19th century missionary movement was phenomenal. And so it shouldn't, it doesn't dampen. If anything, it's the opposite. God is sovereign in these things. We have guaranteed results because he has chosen some unto salvation. When Paul was considering going to Corinth and around Acts 18, 19 or something like that, for I have many in this town. He doesn't say go there and preach so every single one would be saved, but the encouragement is that he does have many of his people scattered around the world from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So we have guaranteed results in his timing. Our job is to be faithful with the proclamation of the message and presenting Christ faithfully to the people Well, Jesus unquestionably paid the ransom for all types of people. He doesn't discriminate, as I said, race, color, and all of that. Jesus' ransom, here's another way to illustrate it. The ransom of Christ and him being a mediator is like if you lived in a small town with only one doctor, uh, one physician. When you see him in the street, you say, there goes our doctor, our town's doctor, But this does not mean you're going to him for treatment presently. He turns out to be your doctor when you get sick, when you realize your sin disease, and you go to be treated by him, and then he becomes your doctor. There's our doctor. He's the doctor of our town, but your doctor. So too, many outside of Christ acknowledge, that's Jesus Christ. Yes, I've heard about Jesus Christ, but it's not their personal Lord and Savior. So I hope I've driven that point home. Very quickly, uh, verse, the rest of the verse here, our fourth point, one gospel message to proclaim. We must be faithful to this really quickly. 
and the testimony given at the proper time. So he gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. What is a testimony? It's God's mercy being manifested to the world. Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. It, the, the idea of the proper time is the appropriate season God reveals who his son is, okay, in the incarnation. And then for us individually, at a certain time when he reveals his mercy to us, when he effectually calls us and regenerates us and, and causes us from our deadness to become spiritually alive, that we can then respond to the glorious gospel message. The truth of God's salvation now must be broadcast to all, and just dipping into verse 7, for this I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, I am telling the truth. And so Paul says, for this glorious message, this glorious ransom, this glorious mediator, I was appointed a preacher, a caruso, a herald to announce this good news to a lost and dying world. The word for preacher is the idea of an official entrusted with a proclamation, a herald, a herald, and those who would go out to make public declarations in the town square to announce to everybody because there wasn't internet or any of that. So if, if take Fox News and Yahoo, if all of that wasn't, if you removed all the internet and all of the electricity, you would be relying upon personal messengers taking these messages and that's what Paul was to Jews and Gentiles. Well, in conclusion, I've seen one God, one mediator, one ransom, one gospel message. Very, oh, but that's very narrow, Pastor Kurt. Yes, because the word of God is narrow. There's only one way of salvation, and you have to understand that. Have you been ransomed by the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, most of you for sure indeed have. You love your Savior but there may be some of you who have not come to Christ. Come to Christ. You some say, "Well, yeah, I've, I've, I've believed. I mean, I believe, and I, but I, I don't want to tell anybody. Shh. I don't want to share that. Why? Such glorious good news. Why would you not want to announce it to everyone? To share it." Publicly through baptism and then in your, the workplace and in, in, in college and in schools and in your friends and in your neighborhoods. You've heard the testimony of God to you that there's one mediator, one way of salvation, one ransom that made it effectual. You've heard the means of salvation. Will you harden your heart? We just sung in Christ alone, my hope is found. There's no other way. You can't fill all of these other things in the world will not satisfy and will not ultimately save you. Are you resting in Christ alone? The word alone is important. Don't look to other mediators and postures. You find yourself delighting in God's grace, reveling in His mercy, amazed at His love towards you, a sinner that fights day by day to battle sin, to battle wicked thoughts. And Lord, why did you choose me? That should be the wonder of our minds. Paul had a rock-solid assurance, and we should have an assurance in the midst of that because it's not based upon our performance. It's based upon the work of another Christ. 
Galatians 2.20, And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Gave himself instead of me. We need to be reconciled to God. Embrace the mediator. And then as we pray, we want to be those that come and praying in the right way, coming, recognizing that we have a great high priest who has said, come boldly to the throne of grace. And so when we come and we pray, it's not just Father, 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 but I'm coming in the name of Christ. I'm coming through the mediator that you would hear, O Father. And again, distractions are so rampant, aren't they? Listen to what one Puritan wrote 350 years ago, Thomas Manton. Until we get our hearts out of the world, how much more if he wrote this in the 21st century? Until we get our hearts out of the world, how easily our hearts are carried away with the thoughts of earthly concerns. Until we can separate and purge our spirits, how we mingle our prayers with ridiculous thoughts. Our carnal hearts insert and interlace our prayers with vain thoughts and earthly distractions. Therefore, we should always labor to get our hearts above the world into the presence of God, as if we were by Him in heaven and wholly swallowed up in His glory. Though our bodies are on earth, our spirits should be in heaven. Just think about that. Let that sink in. As you're trying to remove distractions and have that time in your closet of prayer to begin your day as though you were in his presence. And then finally, the, these doctrines of the atonement and the extent of the atonement and all that, they're, they're deep waters. God is sovereign. He chooses whom he will for salvation. But the gospel is universally preached openly to all and Paul says in Romans 11, after talking about the very sovereignty of God, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments and unfathomable your ways. So you, as a born-again sinner, that knows that you have been ransomed, that you've been redeemed, When you find your heart beginning to become callous, it should melt like wax under the warmth and the love, the eternal love of God for you. And to know that He will cause you to persevere unto the end. We have nothing to boast in except for Christ and His cross and His work. That's what we boast in. These doctrines of a predestination and election are to utterly humble us because it's not your behavior that's going to make you acceptable before him. It's all Christ's work. There's a painting that Rembrandt did, well, a lot of paintings Rembrandt did. I was trying to find this particular one, but uh, it's called The Three Crosses. And as you look at this particular painting, your attention's drawn to the center cross, of course, where Jesus died. And then as you look at the crowd gathered where some of the faces actually face the cross, where you can see the various expressions of of anguish and all of these things upon the crowd that's there, and you're impressed by all of that, these people that were involved in this crime. And then finally your eyes drift to the edge of the painting, and you catch the sight of another figure almost hidden in the the shadows. Art critics say that this was a representation of Rembrandt himself, for he recognized that by his sins he helped nail Jesus to the cross. 
very insightful. Do you see your sin before a holy God? Come through the mediator, confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, turning from your sin, repudiating your sin, and run to the one that bore your sin. And then the promise and the glorious result of that is that then he gives you your spirit and further sanctifies you and makes you holy and gives you new holy desires. So come to him today if you're outside of Christ. And then those of us who are in Christ, may we be reminded upon these things of which our salvation rests and come in our prayers through a mediator. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is infallible, it is all-powerful, that it is sharp. And Lord, we are amazed once again hearing about Christ and what he's done on our behalf Lord, instill in us a greater response of love as we sung earlier. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would indeed help us to revel in these things with gladness and joy. And Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us individually as our families and as a church family. And Lord, that we would have an impact in a lost and dying world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.